I'm afraid that your son is incredibly stupid. He thought he could fly with cardboard wings. The stupidity is so severe that it caused a fall, which has put him into a deep coma. Coma? My God, for, for how long? There's no telling. He may never recover. We'll just have to wait and see. Seasons change, time passes by As the weeks become, the months become the years Oh my, Doctor, he's awake! Where, where am I? Oh, you finally come back! It's a miracle! You're at the hospital, Eric. You've been in a coma for some time. Coma? How long? It's been two days. Nurse, you can remove his face warmer now. Yes, Doctor. That's the show. We're done. <laughs> An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Oh, Episode 379, submission number 1454, Baffled. Baffled was a pilot for NBC that aired on January 30th, 1973 as a movie. A movie! A movie! So, it was a pilot that became a made-for. Yes, it was a pilot that became a made-for. And fun fact, it was actually released cinematically overseas to recoup whatever money was lost.
I gotta say, they really went all out for the opening on this. Oh, there's a lot of excitement in this opening sequence. Yeah, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of action, a lot of jazzy music. Makes you want to get up and shake something, you know? And we have to thank Richard Hill for that jazzy opening. It was distinctly British, and that's only appropriate because this was actually a co-production between Britain and the U.S., and as a matter of fact, I believe at the end, it's noted that it's owned by ITV, I believe. Yes, because it was produced by ITC, and that became ITV Studios. This was that time of television history where if you really wanted a really good British television show, you had to have an American lead for worldwide syndication. See... UFO or Space 1999. And the American lead they got for this show, which was piloted to NBC, was Leonard Nimoy? Mr. Spock? The Great Paris? I'm trying to think, was this after or before he was on Mission Impossible? This was after he was on Mission Impossible. Okay, so he would have gone to Mission Impossible straight after Star Trek. Got exactly. And he would have gone straight into this after Mission Impossible. In the late 60s, early 70s, Leonard Nimoy was struggling, trying, begging to be separated from the role that made him famous. He even wrote a book about it. You know what it was called? What was it called? I am not Spock. Well, of course he's not Spock. He's Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. Noted actor Leonard Nimoy. Just so happens he was on Star Trek and Mission Impossible and something called The Tall Man in 1960. The Tall Man. That's what everyone remembers Leonard Nimoy from. But yeah, this would be a big departure from his previous career-defining role because you have him as a lead, A, whereas in previous career-defining roles, he was sort of second banana. Here he is a lead. Now, I've never imagined Leonard Nimoy as a lead actor. He's always had somebody to play against. And he does have somebody to play against in this pilot, but he is definitely calling all the shots. And it kind of sort of feels like, wow, he's very versatile, this Leonard Nimoy. I guess he isn't Spock. Well, who is he in this pilot, Chico? Well, in this pilot, I'm glad you asked, by the way, in this pilot, he is a race car driver, a Formula One star named Tom Kovac. And in the middle of a race, he suddenly experiences visions, very clear visions, visions of him falling, visions of a palatial British manor, visions of somebody coming downstairs, visions of 
a haystack. A haystack? And visions of a doll. A doll? All of these visions are just flashing to him all at once while he's on the racetrack. He almost crashes twice, ends up crashing a third time. He should have been left for dead. In fact, I believe his crew actually leaves him for dead. But he escapes in one piece with hardly a scratch. In fact, the next scene in the pilot is him talking to a TV interviewer about that accident. And who happens to be watching that interview? An expert on the paranormal and ESP named Michelle Brent, played by Susan Hampshire, who nowadays can be addressed formally as Susan Hampshire Lady Kulukundis. Because she's married to Eddie Kulukundis from uh, 1981 to 2021. His death, not hers. She's still very much with us. But she was actually, at least in America, a young passenger on the Titanic who befriends Dr. Tony Newman in the pilot of the Time Tunnel. Oh! The Time Tunnel! She won Emmys for her roles in The Foresight Saga, The First Churchills, and Vanity Fair, and she appeared again in the U.S. opposite Kirk Douglas in a musical version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, not to be confused with the musical Jekyll and Hyde. Did I ever tell you guys where I saw Jekyll and Hyde with uh, Deborah Cox and Constantine Maroulis as the leads? No, I think that's a first. They're really good. Was it better than seeing the Chicken Tetrazzini episode of Maury? Only marginally. By the way, did you see what I posted in the random reel section on the Instagram account? I have not seen the random reel section since I posted the Thursday episode. I'm going to have to okay. take a look. All right, go into random reels I'm, too. I'm looking at our Instagram, and it was a thing on TV. I hit random reels, which we like to do from time to time. It's really funny stuff. Oh, the history of the Disney Channel. Very nice. Okay. How I look after showing up the day after St. Patrick's Day. I look like the leprechaun. Okay. So the real world out here. Corey Haim and Corey well, Feldman in License to Drive. I want you to take a long look. Now the next one. Okay. Examiners, you... Patiently waiting for a celebrity DNA feud I would come out of retirement for. <laughs> and it's Maury. Just... And it's Maury just eating a bowl of pretzels. Just waiting for a celebrity DNA feud to come out of retirement for. Oh, jeez. Oh, Mike, wouldn't that be great if there was, like, some celebrity DNA drama and we got Maury back for it? I think we could do, like, a three-hour special just on Nick Cannon. Oh, that everybody. That would be great. We could have all, like, 30 women. Hey, but, you know, seriously, we got to look out for Maury. We lost Jerry. And Maury is, I, I think he's, like, 85 or 86. Yeah. We, like we, we got to keep him around. Oh, yeah. Jerry, we don't need to lose Maury so soon. Oh, no. 
Maury, he's a national treasure. We don't want to lose him. No, we don't. So nowadays you can see Susan Hampshire on the Midsummer Murders, if you uh, watch that on Pluto, as I do. And in this particular case, because this was supposed to be a pilot, you have special guest stars, flash, flash, flash. One of them is Rachel Roberts, who plays Mrs. Faraday, and she plays basically an old lady in a wheelchair. Her next big role, the 1974 version of Murder on the Orient Express. And then we have, as American actress, Andrea Glenn, Vera Miles, who played Leela Crane in the 1960 version of Psycho, and its sequel, Psycho 2. And her daughter, Jennifer Glenn, is played by Jewel Blanche, affecting an American accent, because she is Australian. And then we have some bit players. Uh, as Louise Sanford, we have Valerie Taylor, who was more of a West End actress. George Tracewell was played by Ray Brooks, who was also a TV and film actor out of the UK. His wife, Peggy, played by Angered Mary Reese, the Honorable Mrs. David McElpine, who was... Demetz Demelza in Poldark on the BBC during the 70s, and as the Italian visitor Morelli, Christopher Benjamin, who logged in three appearances on Doctor Who. He played Sir Keith Gold in Inferno, Henry Gordon Jago in The Talents of Wang Chiang, and Colonel Hugh Kirbishley in The Unicorn and the Wasp. So... Two old schools, one new school. And as a track announcer, Shane Rimmer, who would be the voice of Scott Tracy in the original Thunderbirds. He's literally the only one who comes out with a career after this. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, why are all these people drawn to this palatial British estate in Devon? Because of a wolf. It's not an actual wolf, it's actually a signet of a wolf. Yeah, it's like an insignia of a wolf. And who gets entangled in all of this? Little Jennifer. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about how Tom meets Michelle. He starts having visions during a race... An American woman and a young girl seem to be in some sort of life-threatening danger in an English mansion. He gives an interview to a reporter and mentions this jokingly. Michelle Brent, who happens to be in New York at the time, watching this interview, she's like, she doesn't think this is a joke. She gets in touch with Tom and asks him to sketch out in as much detail as possible, the mansion in his vision. So he does. And he's actually pretty close. It leads them to a mansion in Devon in the UK, where a number of visitors, some chemists, that's the British term for pharmacists, 
an American actress and her daughter looking for their long-lost uh, father. And a random Italian guy. So Tom and Michelle pass off as a couple. And Michelle asks Tom to help her find the mansion and investigate the case. He thinks Michelle is a nut. As one does. But then he has more visions about the mansion and this wolf signet and falling and knocking over something and a 27 Bentley for some reason. And let me just say, whenever he gets these visions, I gotta say, it totally feels like I'm tripping balls when I see these sequences. I bet you he feels the same way. I mean, have you seen it? Oh, I've seen it. It's like, like when he sees the second vision, it's like he sees it out the window. And it's like, oh my god, what is going on here? It's like, oh man, what was in that drink? So it got to the point where, okay, this is starting to affect my work. This is starting to affect my life. You know what? Fine. We'll go to England. We'll take a look at this. They find the mansion. It turns out to be open for guests in the summertime, so they rent rooms there pretending that they don't know each other in order to avoid the suspicion of Mrs. Faraday, who happens to be the uh, lady of the manor, as it were. Here's the thing about Mrs. Faraday. She's in a wheelchair. And Mrs. Faraday, aside from being creepy as hell, is kind of welcoming toward new guests. But she also wants to know what the true intentions of this new couple of guests are. Meanwhile, in a B-plot, we have Andrea Glenn and her teenage daughter Jennifer arriving at the mansion at the same time, thinking that they were invited there by Andrea's secretive estranged husband. Jennifer can't wait to see him. Instead, they meet Louise Sanford. And now I have to issue a correction real quick. All this time I've been saying Mrs. Barity was the one in the wheelchair, it was Louise Sanford in the wheelchair. Now, Louise Sanford... Wheelchair-bound elderly woman claims to be Andrea's husband's cousin, suggests they stay in the mansion until the husband shows up. Because why not? Sure! Also staying is an Italian architect on vacation named Varelli, who is obsessed with the mansion's wine collection. This is one of those shows where you have to pay attention to everything. You need to pay attention to every detail of this pilot. Yes, this is like one of those Agatha Christie movies of the week. Yeah, like when they go into the mansion, the mother and the daughter for the first time, the daughter talks about, oh, look, look at that cliff in the water there. Like, oh yeah, I definitely know that's going to come into play later. And then there's the wine collection. That's going to come up later. 
And we also have George and Peggy Tracewell, who keep managing to presumably have a tryst as the other guests pretend not to notice. So one night after dinner, Jennifer goes down the stairs into the wine cellar and notices a person by the name of Parrish. Parrish is played by Mike Murray and supposedly the looks like the missing family man that they came to uh, look for. And Mike Murray was in the 1963 version of As You Like It. But aside from that, he was a that British guy from that British theatrical thing. He was very much a Shakespearean-trained actor. Sadly, no longer with us. But gives Jennifer a necklace with a wolf signet on it. And as soon as she puts it on... She begins to act, um, how can I put this? Strange. She starts exhibiting more adult features. There's no childlike physiognomy anymore. She starts, you know, starts brooding about and snapping when people talk to her. And it's almost as if she was possessed. And that would make sense, because this is sort of a venture into the occult, almost. And it's up to Tom and Michelle to figure out what in the world is going on. Meanwhile, Michelle keeps telling Tom the secret to all of this is in your vision. After all, your visions led us here, especially the phrase, it's Wyndham in Devon, dear. Tom and Michelle in Wyndham in Devon, dear. Michelle hopes to deflect the suspicion of whichever evildoer they come to oppose. The Tracewells are actually newlyweds looking to combine business with pleasure because in the back of their car is... A bunch of parcels marked pharmaceuticals. Tom has more visions as the uh, week goes on. Somebody is pouring poisonous oleander sap into a glass of orange juice. In a red glass. Then you also have Morelli covered in blood. And while Jennifer is growing older... Mrs. Faraday is growing younger. What? She also has a clandestine rendezvous with this John Parrish character, while Michelle pays a visit to Parrish's shop in London. So while Tom is investigating things in his 27 Bentley, Michelle is back in London looking into Paris's shop, which turns out to be a burned-out, boarded-up ruin, but nevertheless well-stocked with occult paraphernalia, including a wall hanging with the same wolf's head emblem as Jennifer's necklace. Hmm. Very hmm. interesting. 
she gets busted by a police officer informing that the store's owner died in the fire. What? But Tom then has another image. Oh, he's going to be tripping balls again. Uh-huh. And Sanford, who was actually uh, Parrish in the earlier scene, is the one who owns the shop and is indeed dead. Oh, he did. So, he did. So either Sanford is posing as Parrish, or Parrish is posing as Sanford, and both of them are posing as Jennifer's daddy. Jennifer's growing older, Mrs. Faraday is growing younger, and right now my head hurts. Oh, I don't know what's happening here. I guess the plan now is they're going to do a whole picture of Doreen Gray sort of thing where Parrish or Sanford or whatever the hell he's calling himself is in cahoots with Mrs. Faraday to steal youth from Jennifer. Okay, so it's like a succubus kind of thing. Yeah. Michelle returns to the manor. Tom goes to chase after the pharmaceutical agents. But that turns up to be a red herring. Meanwhile, Michelle gets knocked unconscious. Which leads us to a car chase between Kovic, driving the 1927 Bentley Roadster, and a kidnapper in a black van. Ultimately, Michelle is recovered, thanks to some quick thinking and quick driving on Tom's part. But then Jennifer is still growing older, and Mrs. Faraday is still growing younger. And we are no closer to figuring out what's going on until one night where Mrs. Faraday is looking out of a balcony and Louise Sanford, who at this point was in a wheelchair, gets up out of the wheelchair and decides to do what Jennifer did to Tom not too long ago and push her off a cliff. By the way, I have thoughts here. First of all, if you watch the scene, obvious dummy is obvious. Oh, yeah. Well, also, earlier at the beginning, when we see Leonard Nimoy racing in the Formula One car, obvious rear projection is obvious. Uh-huh. Same rear projection is used when he's in the 27 Bentley, by the way. The next day, we see him back on dry land, not a scratch on him. What? But yeah, back to the climax, the hectic conclusion where Louise Sanford, who was heretofore in a wheelchair, now out of the wheelchair. Oh yeah, it's a miracle. She's out of the wheelchair. Oh, it's not a miracle. What? She's been faking it this entire time. Oh, I can't believe that she was faking it the whole time. 
How does that happen? And that leads to a big fight. And Tom and Michelle, who are trapped in an elevator stall like this was a frickin' Pulaski episode. I really don't want to talk about it. Yes, I totally saw that coming, by the way. Managed to escape the elevator shaft, run into the room, pull Sanford off of Mrs. Barony, and then he pulls off a mask to reveal Parrish? Wow, so this has become Scooby-Doo all of a sudden. Basically. So, he basically explains all of what's going on, and in the middle of the fight, Jennifer's necklace gets broken, and she comes to. She regains her senses. Having figured everything out, Tom and Michelle are getting ready to part ways. He's going back to race in the U.S., she's going to stay in England and do her investigations, when all of a sudden, he has another vision of the same man, the same necklace, in a different place. So, he calls Michelle back and says, Michelle, we're going to Paris. So off they go to Paris for another adventure. And that, confusing as it may be, is the pilot. And I apologize if you didn't get all of it. It was a whole lot to take in the first time. If I may add something. No wonder this show is called Baffled. I think everybody watching it was baffled. Certainly you guys were. I, I didn't see this really at all. And actually, I thought going in uh, with the name Baffled, I thought maybe it was like just baffled by science or something. Like a predecessor of, in search of, Leonard Nimoy's show from the late 70s and early 80s. Clearly it isn't, but yeah, this is baffling to say the least. Yeah, I mean, the biggest problem is it was trying to do too much in the 90 minutes it was given. It's like, we're trying to pull in all of these red herrings, all of these clues that are leading one way or the other. Uh, the blood that was covering Varelli, I believe his name was, turns out he's just a run-of-the-mill butcher who happens to like architecture. And Andrea Glenn... How she and Jennifer get to the mansion. We talked about how the cousin Louise actually made the arrangements for the Glens to come to the mansion. And she had to know what was going on. But Louise hasn't seen the husband either. So it's like the instructions came to her by mail. And the person who was supposed to mail them was actually dead. Uh, like I said, this was a lot to take in. Greg, anything to add here? 
I'll just say this, and I know this is not saying much, but this is actually the best of the pilots we've seen so far. Oh, yeah, it's very well done. I mean, it's one of those pilots that'll keep you guessing until the very end. I was entertained during it. And we get to the who done it, the how they done it, how they gonna figure out how they did it, but we never get to the why. And it's almost like one of those things where this is just when it gets very tropey. It's like, how do we do it? Or why did they do it? Well, it's simple, really. They did it for the money. When it becomes way too complicated to explain why they do it, you always throw that in. It's like, why do they do the things they do? Well, it's simple, really. They did it for the money. And that sort of fails, if you think about it, because the villains are living in this palatial mansion and are wealthy enough to afford whatever they want. Why would they want more money? And the girl, she doesn't have any. So what purpose would she serve? So the only thing I can think of is, here's this guy who is obviously traveling the world looking for uh, something. Something sort of secret society-ish. Because that signet appears as he's walking through an airport in Paris. That's one of those things where it's pretty much the cause celeb of whatever he's got going on. And the thing of it is, it was actually quite well structured for it to go to series. I mean, it would just be this global manhunt for Sanford or Parrish or whatever he's calling himself. It's sort of like the prototype to what a serial television show, a serial weekly, would be. It's kind of like a Holmes Moriarty sort of thing. Yeah. But if you were to make it a little bit tighter, you know, cut out some of the bloat, because at 90 minutes, this pilot was indeed bloated, it could have worked. NBC decided to pass on the pilot. It was released in the UK in theaters as an actual movie movie to recoup some of the losses, presumably. And the movie itself has been released on DVD. You can actually watch it on YouTube, and you can watch it on Tubi. Yes. And if you want to buy it digitally... You can buy it on Prime Video for $7.99, or you can rent it for $1.99. Don't weep for the career of Leonard Nimoy. He would not be defined by the failure that is baffled. Over time, he would come to begrudgingly accept his role in the greater scheme of things. In fact, he even wrote a book about it. It was called... I am Spock. Well, of course he's Spock. He plays the role of Spock on Star Trek. And the rest of the cast, they would go on to uh, fruitful careers in their own right. And this movie, as baffling as it was fascinating, would end up being just a thing on TV. And you know what, guys? At least in this pilot we didn't get a 4,000 pound breasts. Is that really going to be the new running gag? Yes! 
Oh dear. Well, I want to have some fun here. Don't say we're doing an eBay prices right. Don't say we're doing eBay prices right. Come on, it was the thing on TV Haiku Corner. Limerick. Sonnet. Anything. Well, I can't have some fun because I can't buy the 27 Bentley Roadster on eBay. Oh, oh darn. Oh. oh. Darn it. <laughs> Dang it. Well, you know what, guys? It's time for yet another edition of It Was a Thing on TV Haiku Corner, written by ChatGPT. Okay. So ChatGPT wrote for me a haiku about Mr. Spock. Oh my god, this is a great, this is so great. ChatGPT, even though it's AI, it makes me want to cry how brilliant ChatGPT is at its haiku writing. Okay, you ready for this? I'm ready for this. Mike, are you ready? Let's go. All right. Logic guides his mind. Spock, a Vulcan steady soul. Emotions control. That's deep, man. Oh, it is. I gotta say, Chad has written two great haikus on the right. He wrote me the Amy Pond haiku last week and the Mr. Spock haiku this week. Oh, but I got better. I got better. Well, first off, I asked ChatGPT to write me, of all things that we could talk about, a baffled, not a haiku, not a limerick, not a sonnet, not a quatrain. I asked it to write a sea shanty about the TV product <laughs> baffled. Oh, God. Oh, this is so great. Oh, I wasn't even going to read the sea shanty. You really want me to say... Uh, to, Might as well. Might okay. as well. All right. I actually was going to do the limerick, but if you guys really want the sea shanty, sure. Come gather around me hearties and listen to me tail. And I'm dead serious. I'm not even making that up. That's the first line. <laughs> Come gather around me hearties and listen to me tail of a TV show pilot that set sail. It was called Baffled, and it starred Leonard Nimoy, whose logic was marred. He played a psychic who solved crimes with visions and premonitions at all times. But when he met a car racing star, his powers failed him, and he couldn't get far. I'm not even done yet. I'm not even. I'm halfway done. Calm down. The crew of the show tried their best to make sense of this supernatural quest. But the plot was a stormy sea, and the pilot sank without mercy. So come all ye sailors and heed my warning. When it comes to TV pilots, it's hit or miss in the morning. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh. I still got two more lines to go. Oh, boy. And even with a crew as strong as Nimoy, sometimes the waters can be too deep to enjoy. <laughs> That's it. Okay, we're not doing haikus anymore. We're not doing limericks. We're doing just sea shanties. Well, we have to find a way to sing a sea shanty. But anyway, since you guys have done something, it's sexy sex time, people! Oh, yeah, we haven't heard this in forever.
that's right, it is not eBay prices right. We are going to Bottoms.com, the Bottoms July Motoring Auction, where I have found a 1927 Bentley 3-liter speed model sports roadster, registration number JO377, chassis number TN1559, which sold for... <coughs> that's for y'all to find out. I'm looking for the amount sold in dollars as of this recording. Mike, you have the tender sea shanty voice, so I think you can go first. I feel like I can get GPT to write me a sea shanty about this car. I have no idea at all. I will go $14,000. Greg? This is a tough call. I will give Mike a little bit of wiggle room. I will go $19,000. Okay, so Bonhams sold this 1927 Bentley 3-liter Roadster for 225,000 pounds. Yikes! That translates, as of this recording, to $284,377 and 50 cents. Greg wins. It's a Bentley, people! A 27 Bentley! You're gonna pay $20,000 for... Y'all! Y'all! I could cosplay as the third doctor and pretend it's Bessie. You could do that! You could do that! In fact, I know you happen to have... A full third Doctor costume. Sure. <laughs> this is like one of the top of the line classic sporting cars in all of history. You are not paying less than a quarter mil for it. And Leonard Nimoy got to sit in the driver's seat of that. Oh my god. While tripping balls. Greg, <laughs> you love that phrase. That's at least the third time you've used that this episode. Oh, I love saying that as much as I love saying 4,000 pound press. <laughs> well, I have to end this show before things get incredibly out of hand. Oh, too late, because you know what? It's time for the Joey Gallo report. Oh, that's right! Woohoo! Joey Gallo, he can't hit over 200, but he can sure smack a ball over the fence! It's the Joey Gallo update! So, how many balls does Joey Gallo have this week? So many balls did Joey Gallo trip? <laughs> well, I have really horrible news. Oh, really no. horrible news. Oh, no. Now, what is it, Mike? Since the last episode, since last Friday, Joey Gallo has appeared in six games. Only one problem. In those six games, he's appeared uh, in a total of 18 at-bats. He has zero hits in those 18 at-bats. Oh. So what's happened is his average went from 265... And he's gone back down below the 200 mark. His batting average is 194. 
So, you know, I know Greg was like, oh, he's hitting 296 or, yeah, 265. Oh, he's not going to bat 200. We gave him a week. He's back below 200. But hold on. What if he's under 200 by the all-star rate and he has 35 home runs? He hasn't had a single friggin' hit in the last week. How do you think he's going to hit 35 home runs at the all-star break? Well, hold on. Like I say in the beginning of the song. I think you're tripping balls. He can't hit over 200, but he can sure smack a ball over the fence. This is true. Well, but he hasn't done it in the last week, so that sort of goes out the window. Yeah, but you know what? You never know. He could get on a hot seat and start hitting home runs again. It would figure it would start this weekend since they're in Cleveland playing the Guardians. But we'll see what happens next week. Maybe he might be hitting. He might be down to like a 150 or 140 this time next week. Hey, you know, if he gets on a super hot streak, he might be at 300 again. Who knows? Stay tuned. He'll certainly be batting better than Luis Guillaume. Yikes. All right. Now I think we can officially close the book on Baffled. I think everybody at this point is baffled between the pilot itself and the sea shanty about the pilot and uh, the Bentley nine eBay prices right. And now the Joey Gallo report. Everybody is baffled, so let's close up this baffling entry. Yes, we're going to close it up. We're going to de-baffle over at itwasathingontv.com where you can find all of our previous episodes, all of our mini-sodes, live watches, over 500 episodes worth of content waiting for you on itwasathingontv.com and, of course, wherever podcasts can be streamed. Like and subscribe, rate and review, five stars only because positive vibes only. And if you are listening on YouTube, don't forget to smash the notification bell so you can stay up to date on all of our pilots that we have lined up for next week. Yeah, next week we got three pilots. First, we have an unsold pilot with Richard Lewis as a doorman? Okay. And then, oh, what happens when you have maybe the biggest cultural phenomenon of the 1960s and you try to follow it up? Batman 67? Did you say Batman 67? Oh, no. Yes, I said Batman 67. Oh, yeah. That will be the sequel after Batman 66. It'll be like Match Game. 73 oh, turned geez. into 74. Every year we'll change the title. It'll be Batman 67. Then it'll be Batman 68. Then, oh, the nicest season of all, the Jake of the Batman prequel. Batman <laughs> 69. Nice. Oh, he went there. And really, what I'm imagining is like every year, William Conrad gains another inch around his waist. So he's like 66 inches in 1966. Then, oh, 67. He's a 67 inch waist. He's really the fat man. And then he asks, What was in that Danish? That's not till 1985. Oh, no. Can't wait for Fat Man 73. Just saying. And then, hey, I mentioned that Charles Nelson Riley would be in something in May. Well, guess what? That is next week. We got a lot of good stuff coming up next week. Three pilots. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week and come back here on Monday for the first of those three pilots. Wow. Okay, guys. 
I asked ChatGPT, believe it or not, to write me a sea shanty about the 1927 Bentley three-liter sports roadster. Okay. Oh, great. I think this is the first time we've ever incorporated an eBay or non-eBay prices right item into one of these things. So this is beautiful. All right. All right. Come gather around me, Hardys. Is this the same way it started the other one? Hold on. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Come gather around me, Hardys, and listen to me tail. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's not come gather around me, Hardys, and listen to me tail. Come gather around me, Hardys, and listen to me song of a vintage car that's been around for quite long. It's a Bentley three-liter sports roaster from 27, and its tale of adventure will send you to heaven. With its sleek and shiny body, it glides on the street, and its roar of an engine can't be beat. It's seen many lands and felt many winds, and its strength and power will never rescind. From the rugged hills of Scotland to the shores of France, this car has seen romance, war, and dance. It's crossed many rivers and climbed many peaks, and it's left its tire marks on countless streaks. So let's raise a glass to this vintage gem, a car that's worthy of a sea shanty anthem. Anthem and gem? Okay. May it keep rolling on for years to come. This Bentley three-liter sports roadster will never be done. Nice. Stick around next week and see what sea shanty we're going to have for you, me hearties. Arr.